that wraps it up for another edition of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Our roving producer and producer of Flashpoints in Espanol is Miguel Gavilan Molina. Our technical director is Mike Biggs. For more information about the show, to listen to or download archived episodes, log on to flashpoints.net or visit our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com forward slash flashpoints. For questions or comments about Flashpoints, you can contact Dennis at dennisjbernstein at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. In short, the period was very much like the present period. You're listening to Community Radio, KBOO Portland. Hello. Hello. One, two, three. Tune in to KBOO on Wednesday, May 26th for Youth Day special programming. Join KBOO's youth-focused programs as they take over the airwaves with interviews, music, in-depth discussions, and hand-picked archives from the underground and youth randomonium. Celebrate Youth Day with us on Wednesday, May 26th, from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. here on your community radio station, KBOO Portland. Make sure to like and subscribe, times like now, wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Google Casts, and more. On this episode, Louis Gong, activist, artist, teacher, entrepreneur, and owner of 8th Generation, a Native American-owned company based in Seattle, Washington on this episode of Times Like Now. Hello, Louis Gong. Thank you so much for joining me here today on Times Like Now. How are you? I'm doing great, Trevor. Thanks for having me. So I first was introduced to your to your work when you were having children, having kids in school, painting on their shoes. Mm-hmm. Now you're doing traditional uh, Salish and traditional Native uh, designs upon shoes with kids. And I think I... Maybe I caught an article in the paper or maybe a, a video online somewhere. Tell me a little bit about your past, your history, and how 8th Generation became a, a, your thing. Oh, absolutely. So my name is Louie. I'm a Nooksack tribal member, and I was raised in my community by my grandma and grandpa. And um, I never thought of myself as being an artist. You know, a lot of uh, Whatcom County... Uh, schools where I grew up were focused on sports. And so uh, I think a lot of the interest and aptitude that I had in the arts 
uh, went overlooked when I was a, a young person. And it wasn't until I was in my 30s working in higher education at Muckleshoot Tribal College in Auburn, just south of Seattle, that I started exploring art. And it was when the Muckleshoot tribe was hosting the intertribal canoe journey uh, that many people um, probably have seen on the news or, or maybe been out to one of the very huge cultural events that are associated with the canoe journey. Um, they were making drums for giveaway items at the canoe journey uh, at the tribal college and I participated in that process and um, just like all the the, the elders and language students that were making the drums. I started with a hide, composed a drum, set it to dry, and then painted it for the, you know, for the first couple times. But when people saw I had an aptitude for painting, they said, hey, Louie, why don't we just make the drums and you paint them? And so over the course of about three or four months, I painted about 30 drums. And it was that experience with uh, the Muckleshoot tribe when I was in my early 30s that really awakened this love of uh, Coast Salish art. And that's the art of the region uh, that we live in. Um, Coast Salish is a really important term to know if you have any interest in uh, native art or culture. It's an anthropological term, but it's really useful and it describes the, uh, uh, you know, basically a language and culture group that extends from, you know, uh, southern British Columbia on the west side of the mountains all the way down to about Portland area. And it's different from northwest coast, which is where totem poles are from. It's a really important distinction. At any rate, uh, once this love of Coast Salish art was awakened, I'd be like driving home in my commute from Auburn to Seattle every day, and I could see Coast Salish design elements in everything, like in the backs of cars. And, the, you know, I'd It'd be sitting in traffic and look at someone's face in the car next to me and see Coast Salish design elements composing their face. You know, it was really clear how our ancestors saw the world when developing this um, art style. Uh, at any rate, another thing that I was interested in and had always been drawn to was custom shoes. I'd always looked at uh, shoes that people had drawn on as being yes. really cool and also really accessible, you know. You didn't have to have art training to try this out. And so very early on, I drew on a pair of shoes. And this is related to my mixed heritage and also my work around um, multiracial identity. It's a whole nother track of my career. Um, but for many years, I uh, did a lot of work trying to raise awareness about the experiences of people of mixed heritage. and. Uh, I was raised by my grandpa who's Chinese, my grandma who's native, uh, my mom is white. And so I had a really dynamic experience around identity and spent a lot of my adult years in nonprofit leadership trying to, um, you know, uh, validate the experiences of other people who are also of mixed heritage. So uh, when I started doing art, um, although I was loving Coast Salish art, I always had this interest in using Coast Salish art to express an honest version of my identity and not try to replicate what I thought an anthropologist might stamp as Coast Salish approved or what more traditionalists might think is uh, authentic. I wanted to do something that was truly a representation of myself. So I went to the store and um, uh, was looking at shoes and I found a nice blank pair of Vans one day, which was my favorite shoe at the time. 
And I brought those home and I grabbed a Sharpie and I tried to draw on them in a way that reflected my identity in an honest way. And what came out was this really contemporary Coast Salish art on vans. I was very, very proud of them, even though that first pair was not very good. But when I wore them to the tribal college where I was working at the time, everybody was like, man, where'd you get those? Those are sick. And how can I get a pair? And that was the beginning of eighth generation. So originally I made eighth generation as a, or I created eighth generation as a way to sell the shoes I was decorating with cultural art while still working in higher ed administration at Muckleshoot Tribal College. So what does eighth generation represent and what does it mean, the, the phrase, the term to you? Eighth generation is a name that I chose very purposefully. It has tons of meaning for me. Eight, when you say it in Cantonese, sounds just like the word for prosperity. So eight is a very lucky number to have in your business name. Um, and so I incorporated eight as a way to pay homage to uh, my grandpa and my, my Chinese heritage. And eighth generation is a play on this intertribal value of seven generations. Um, in rudimentary terms, it is basically a decision-making framework that says you should, you should uh, consider the consequences of your decisions seven generations into the future. So by calling the business eighth generation, in my mind, I'm paying respect to the previous seven generations and sort of recognizing that I'm standing on their shoulders. I see. So eighth generation uh, now based or has a store, I should say, in Seattle down at Pike's Place. When did that open? Uh, our store at Pike Place Market, which is a it's a beautiful little boutique shop um, in the area they call the atrium. Um that was opened in 2016. That was one year after we did what is probably the most groundbreaking thing that eighth generation has ever done, which is launch wool blankets. So we became the first native owned company to offer wool blankets in 2015. The store at Pike Place Market followed in 2016. Um, between the time where I started drawing on shoes and you know established the entity eighth generation um, and the store opening, there was tons of work that happened. Um, it's kind of a blur for me, and I sort of describe that uh, time as like a montage in the movies where the music you know, starts to uh, pick up and you see um, the main characters sort of working together, kind of like what we used to see in the A-Team. I guess I'm dating myself that way, but... <laughs> oh, no, for sure, for sure. The... So uh, I, bas I have no business training. Um, I didn't have any people in my family who had business experience. I'd never thought of even entering into business. But for me, when I started um, selling my shoes, I recognized that all the pathways in front of me um, that are traditionally available to Native artists were laden with middlemen. So there wasn't one direction that I could go uh, that I didn't have to go through a gallery or a company or um, an organization. And essentially, in going through them, what I mean is you ask, have to ask for permission or validation um, that what you're doing is okay. And I decided early on that I didn't want to participate in that kind of system. You know, if I have skills and resources and my work's in demand, I didn't want to use it to strengthen a system 
that has never been designed to support people who grew up like me. In fact, the system, in my mind, is a very powerful tool for reinforcing existing power structures, um, a lot of them race-based. So for example, indigenous art is super popular. Native people make art, non-native people own galleries. And there's an exchange of uh, privilege that happens where if you have the knowledge, if you have access to capital, uh, the knowledge about how to communicate with people who have the socioeconomic means to uh, buy art from a gallery, um, you can exchange that for 50, 60% of the value of an art that an artist created. So I didn't want to support that system. I felt like I could look back on 100 years of the gallery system in the Pacific Northwest and recognize that it has only worked for two or three people. So what I decided to do was focus on products. Um, and I started off with the investment, the first investment that I made in myself after saving up money from doing the workshops that you mentioned, which were around exploring identity through shoe customization, um, was a laser. And I think my first laser was about $14,000, and it was all the money I had at the time. But as soon as I had that laser, I started to put the ideas that I had together around art and product development um, uh, really creatively because people with my sort of... Uh, cultural background and worldview really hadn't had access to the to production a whole lot um, in the past. And so what I created really looked new to people. And so I started having success right away. Once I started having that success, I started helping other artists do the same thing. Um, a lot of people said, why are you helping other people? You're just getting started. <laughs> and uh, But it has always been like the education piece and the service piece have always been really enticing to me. Anyway, that help of other artists became the foundation of eighth generation um, and ultimately led to the Inspired Natives project. Um, so eighth generation is now one of the fastest growing native owned businesses in the United States or Canada. We have a store at Pike Place Market. We're the first native owned comp company to ever offer wool blankets. And our business exists at the intersection of art service, uh, education, um, and modern business practices. Yeah, your Inspired Natives project, the, the tagline or the quote that we have here is that, that you had created, support inspired natives, not native inspired. That's a very powerful, powerful statement and says a lot in just a few words, because as we know, there is a lot of uh, imported or knockoff, we call it, uh, native work um, arts out there. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about about that. Where did that come from? Yeah, so the market for products featuring native art has been dominated by non-native companies almost exclusively using fake native art for hundreds of years. And when I tried to bring my art to market, I realized that you know if I ever wanted to explore wholesale, there's no room for me because the shelves are the shelves at stores who want to sell products with native art on them are already full with really established companies who are making product with fake art. So for example, um, I had a workshop collaboration with the uh, Smithsonian in Washington DC, the National Museum of the American Indian. And uh, when I called their gift shop, uh, 
coordinator to see if they'd be interested in carrying eighth generation blankets. He said, we already have native blankets. And of course, he was talking about Pendleton blankets. And there was never any exploration of the sort of origin of the art on the blanket or uh, the value of supporting a native-owned company versus a non-native-owned company. And so through my journey, uh, I've not only had to sort of carve a new pathway for uh, a native artist uh, to make a living from art, but I've also had to take on education of uh, people who control opportunities associated with native uh, art on products. Um, one of the ways that I have done that is um, establishing the tagline, Inspired Natives, Not Native Inspired. It's uh, catchy and informative, and it's been a really powerful tool in educating consumers about um, the importance of supporting native artists and, and native-owned businesses and taking one, you know, maybe three extra seconds to ask who is the artist? Because <laughs> if the artist is not on the label, if it's not included on the website description, then it's fake native art. And most consumers want something that's authentic and they want their money to be, they want their money uh, to support things that are aligned with their values, not to undermine them. So by taking, a, if they hear that tagline a few times, next time they're in front of that product or reading a description on the website, uh, they're gonna take that extra three seconds to see if they can find the artist name. Now you mentioned to me earlier that you actually have some cease and desists and having some real issues with some of those uh, plastic soulless corporations that are, uh, as you described. Tell me more about that, what's going on there? Well. Um, so let me back up a little bit. So Inspired Natives, Not Native Inspired is related. Uh, to understand the value of that term, you also have to understand the American Indian Arts and Crafts Act. And to make a long and complicated story very quick, it's a truth in advertising law that says that you can't call something native if it's not. And so large corporations like Pendleton and many others they use the term Native American inspired or Native inspired. If you can imagine, I'm making uh, air quotes right now, Trevor. <laughs> yes. As a tool to skirt the American Indian Arts and Crafts Act. So their goal is to evoke this idea of Native stories, Native authenticity, Native culture, without actually violating the law. And so when we say inspired Natives, not Native inspired, we're directly uh, sending a dig to the companies who use that term to describe their fake native products. Um, the history of that term extends way back to 2013 when um, I was lucky enough to get an audience with the Assistant Secretary for the Department of the Interior at the time and the Chair of the American Indian Arts and Crafts uh, Board to try to update the American Indian Arts and Crafts Act to address the way people are finding art now. You know, when the act was established, or I guess when it was reinvigorated the last time was in the early 90s. And at that time, people were not buying products online. So if you said native inspired, um, uh, it didn't have nearly as much consequence as it does today when if you put that on your product on a website or use that tag or use it in your metadata, 
there's not that much difference between that and actually saying it's a native X, Y, or Z. So the spirit of the American Arts and Crafts Act is to make sure that um, native voices don't get drowned out. And we wanted them to make sure in 2013, native voices didn't get drowned out. In doing that, we, I'm making, sorry, I'm going on a, a tangent here, but in um, making that effort, we realized that we were not gonna get help uh, from the people who um, could help us by reinvigorating the American Arts and Crafts Act. And it was a couple days later that I woke up in the middle of the night and the tagline popped into my head. And I realized the tagline could be a way for us to take this matter into our own hands and ruin the term uh, native inspired. And so that's what we've tried to do. Now, fast forward uh, you know, another 10 years after you know, countless 12-hour days, working seven days a week, and taking on emotional labor, emotional labor, like the emotional labor associated with the process I just described. I mean, I don't know how to talk to the assistant secretary for the Department of the Interior, um, but you know, I just I, I tried hard, you know, and I and I've always done a good job of consulting my most uh, loyal mentors, uh, Google and YouTube, and uh, have educated myself along the way. Anyway, all that work has led to eighth generation rapidly taking market share from larger companies um, who have dominated this market for a long time. And because of that, we've gotten on their um, radar. They realized that they need to do something now. And most of these companies, rather than changing their business model to work in a way that represents fair trade with native artists, are co-opting our talking points and even the tagline from eighth generation. And you can imagine how it feels for me to you know, develop a business model that's not just, it's not just modern business practices and marketing, you know, it's based upon the traditional values and the cultural expectations in native communities. So when a larger company, I'm talking about $25 million companies, $50 million companies, uh, when they decide to just take the content that is generated organically from, you know, uh, my experiences and my upbringing in the Nooksack tribal community is very personal. But we've also protected our content. And so right now, eighth generation, because we um, have recently been purchased by the Snoqualmie tribe, uh, we have the legal might to be able to hold ground the way that no other native artist or native company has ever been able to do. And so when we see our tagline being co-opted or our talking points being used by these, uh, by these other companies, we'll send a cease and desist and follow up if we need to. And let me tell you, so far, eighth generation, this uh, small but rapidly growing business started by a Nooksack kid drawing on shoes is batting a thousand against these larger companies. And this is a really important point to note because um, before eighth generation, any native artist that has generated traction with either their aesthetic or a business idea would just get swallowed up in the same way that these companies are trying to swallow us up right now. And um, we're sort of at a watershed moment because eighth generation is having success defending against sort of just the uh, 
you know, the organic way that capitalism uh, can play out on smaller entities. Oh, absolutely. It, you know, the, this, this system has a way of, of crushing mm-hmm. the little guy. And what you're doing here is you're merging your, your art, activism, and business and taking on the, the behemoth, taking on the giants. And, you know, uh, what's that, a small axe? You know, cut down a large tree with a, with a small axe. Yeah, it really is. Really glad to uh, really glad to be hearing all of this uh, and the success that you're having and hearing it directly from you. Uh, you've you've done so well, and uh, I'm sure the future is going to be bright for you. Your your store, you're back open after COVID. That's true. Um, in March of 2020, we shut down just like everybody else. I mean, we didn't. You know, there was a mandate to shut down, but you know, we were scared for our employees. We were scared for our customers, and uh, so we we closed down. We also adjusted in a number of other ways at the same time. Um, we had really big plans to sort of capitalize on this organic growth that was happening with eighth generation. So we wanted to develop our infrastructure. We wanted to double our inventory and all of that got froze. Um, and that had a huge impact on us later on during the holiday season when we were sold out of about 70% of our product. Um, but what's happening right now is the store has reopened. Uh, we're on a reduced schedule. So if you happen to come down to uh, Seattle on a Saturday or Sunday, come drop by and see us. So we have a big neon sign right on First Avenue um, at uh, Pike and First, um, and then also one right above the gum wall. So if you follow those neon signs, you can find us. Um, the other thing that is happening is our inventory is getting replenished. So while 2020 was a roller coaster ride for sure. Um, we're now in a position to really sort of get be slingshot forward, you know, into the holiday season for 2021. That is great news. What is the website where people can see, you know, some of the art that you make and some of the designs and some of the artists that you're working with that you're bringing into Eighth Generation to to do designs for the company. What is the website? Yeah, uh, the website is eighthgeneration.com. You can just Google eighth generation. You don't have to worry if you spell it right. It'll pop up. But don't forget the second H in eighth. (laughs) When I chose my uh, (laughs) business name and and website URL, I forgot how hard that word was is to spell. But uh, so watch out for that. Uh, But it's maybe that's why my first email didn't get to you. (laughs) It could very well be. Uh, one thing that I want to note is that 8th Generation is not just my art. We are a national company, and the Inspired Natives Project was the beginning of 8th Generation expanding regionally by adding uh, Native artists who are vetted by their community. So 100% of our product is designed by Native artists who are paid for their work, and if they need it, they also get business capacity building from me. So if they don't have e-commerce, I help them with it. If they uh, need a logo, if they need help with their taxes you know I help them either myself or find someone who can help them um, and uh, right now we currently have about 25 artists represented on our website and since 2015 when we first launched full blankets we've made blankets with about 70 different native artists that is a huge so you know to start off drawing on shoes and come from the Nooksack community and to create real economic opportunity for that many people uh, is something I'm super proud of. And and you should be. It's it's great work. Um, 
I hope to I hope to buy one of those uh, new blankets. I I saw on social media today you have a new a new like I remember what you called them, but a larger blanket, an oversized blanket's coming. Oh yeah, so so eighth generation. Um, it you know it was very challenging to enter into the high barrier to entry wool blanket market, and uh, so when we started that, um, we started with an imported blanket, and so it is designed by a native artists, set up for production by native people. The logistics are handled by native people, but it was made overseas. So it's still one of our most popular blankets. We've had that for what six years now, but we've added other blankets that are sourced domestically around the United States. And we, because we've consistently invested in our own capacity, eighth generation is now able to produce wool textiles right in our Seattle studio. So we're not just creating opportunities for native artists, we're creating real jobs right here in Seattle. And that's an accomplishment in its own. This is one of the most expensive cities in the country and eighth generation is uh, holding its own, you know, in a very challenging business environment and even expanding rapidly and doing ultimately what uh, is one of the most rare things of all, which is reshoring production. It's an inspiring story, Louis. Um, you should be proud and your your community should be inspired by this. I hope others will, you know, seek you out and, and you know, come to you for, for guidance because I, I certainly think you are, uh, are leading the way in this. Uh, congratulations again. Entrepreneur, activist, artist, Louis Gong, really do appreciate your time today. Thank you very much, Trevor. You can listen to past episodes of Times Like Now wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Trevor Collins. I can be reached, Trevor, at timeslikenow.com. Thank you to the letter J, Cody Robertson, for original music. Please do listen in, like, and subscribe. Times like now. And I look forward to speaking with you next time. Hello, this is Daffodil. You're listening to Community Radio KBOO Portland. My name is Joseph Gallivan, and you're listening to Art Focus on KBOO Portland. My guests this week are artists Malia Jensen and Nan Curtis. They're here talking about Exquisite Scrolls, a show of 13 10-foot scrolls, each one created by eight artists, which is on display at various galleries through May 29th and is also up for auction at pnca.edu. Thanks for doing Art Focus. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Let's, we're in the up for space. Uh, the two that face you as you come in are called Exquisite Desk and the low one is called